Hey, welcome to You Pick Tonight, a father-daughter double feature podcast. I'm Dan Coyce. I'm a father. I'm 45. And I'm Lyra Coyce. I'm Dan's daughter, and I'm 15. Hi, Lyra. Hi, Dad. Uh, this is our very first episode. We're trying this out. We have no idea how it will work. Uh, the idea of this podcast is that in each episode, we will each pick one movie for the other one to watch with us. Uh, one, So we'll talk about two movies. One a movie that Lyra picks out for me, one a movie that I pick out for her. Yep. And we'll see how two movie lovers who are separated by 30 years and like apparently 20 micro generations view these different kinds of movies and we'll think about what parents like their kids to watch and be exposed to and we'll think about what kids like their parents to be exposed to and and to watch with them yes um this week we are talking about two movies about girls caught in a sort of mysterious fantasy universe i chose whisper of the heart a 1995 anime directed not disregarded hopefully not disregarded I pray to God, not disregarded. Directed by Yoshifumi Kondo and written by Hayao Miyazaki. And I picked Pan's Labyrinth, which is a 2006 fantasy directed by Guillermo del Toro. This week we're going to start with Pan's Labyrinth. So, Lyra, here's why I chose Pan's Labyrinth for us to watch together. Um, I I haven't seen it since I first saw it in theaters, which I think was back in 2006, in the middle of the Oscar race that year. I remembered it being really mesmerizing and very creepy, but also that the heroine in it was very resourceful and very clever and brave. Um, You're a big Buffy fan, as as we know. And I thought maybe the mix of fantasy and horror in this movie might be up your alley. Um, But I didn't remember it that well. Uh, Certain parts of it, I bet you can imagine which parts, and we'll talk about that, really stuck in my memory, and other parts were very hazy. So, for those who do not know about Pan's Labyrinth, uh, it was Guillermo del Toro's art house breakthrough in the United States. Later, of course, he won the Oscar um, for his movie about fish sex. But before this, before 2006, before Pan's Labyrinth, he'd made very successful action movies. Um, like He made a Hellboy movie, which was really fun. He made horror movies. But this was really different than most American moviegoers knew from him. It was, you know, a dark fairy tale uh, that employed a lot of his trademark stuff, like his infatuation with creatures and monsters and insects. But it did it in the service of like a very simple sort of fable story. And it won three Oscars uh, for its cinematography, for its art direction and its makeup. It was also nominated for Best Foreign Language Film and Best Screenplay. The movie is set in 1944. It's just at the end of the Spanish Civil War, or just after the end of the Spanish Civil War, in the early years of the Franco dictatorship in Spain. And I didn't really know that much about this period at all in Spain. And so I read up a little bit on it. Um, Michael Atkinson has a really great essay in the liner notes and the booklet of the Criterion Collection edition, the DVD that we watched, which was really helpful in sort of understanding the political uh, and historical framework around this movie. Mostly what we need to know for the purposes of this is that in Spain in 1944, the fascists have won. They won a long and bloody civil war. They're now sort of cleaning up the last of the rebels who still persist out in the countryside. Uh, The main character, Ophelia, her father has died Seems like in the war, her mother has married, remarried a, a captain of the fascists. Um, and in a house up in the mountains, that captain is awaiting the baby that his new wife is about to deliver. 
And he's also torturing and murdering rebels who are hiding out in the forest nearby. And uh, Just like normal family man stuff. Just like normal family man stuff. Yeah, just like what you want your stepdad to be engaged in on a daily basis. Um, and Ophelia, who's the girl at the center, is 11. Um, and in a parallel story to the political and historical story, she, there's a fantastical story. She meets a magical fawn in a labyrinth in the garden outside the house. Um, the fawn tells her, actually, she is a princess of the underworld and she can become immortal and return to her kingdom, but she must pass three trials. A very traditional fairy tale uh, structure. There lived a young girl whose only escape was in a legend that wanted her back. Lyra, the magical parts of this movie are the parts that really stuck with me, you know, 14 years later, um, the, the, the descending into the underworld and meeting these fantastical creatures. Um, how did you read those sections? How do you think the movie wants us to read them? Do you, which is to say, do you think they're real quote unquote real? Do you think Ophelia actually is experiencing these things or is this a movie where the fantastical is just in her head? Well, this might be a little bit of an unusual way to put this. One of the first things that I thought upon finishing it and upon thinking about it more was that I don't think the movie really had a stance as to that. Mm -hmm. I mean, it might have, but it sort of changed up that stance for whatever would be the most emotionally distressing outcome. Oh, and so you think that sometimes it gave us the sense that this was in her head and sometimes... It gave us a sense it was real, depending on what the movie wanted to accomplish. Yes, and it felt like in most cases what the movie wanted to accomplish was emotional pain. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we have the implication that all the magic is real when she places the malformed baby garlic thing. The mandrake. Yes, the mandrake. (laughs) That's what it was. Under her mother's bed, and you can see, like, this thread of it becomes real in that instance because the removal of it causes her mother to get worse. But Mm -hmm. then in another instance where it'd be more painful for it not to be real, upon which her evil stepdad, because, you know, he's like cartoonish fairy tale evil, even though I know people were like that, um, for her evil stepdad to not be able to see the fawn that is... That's talking to her. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Which gives him the impression that she's losing her mind and also prevents her from having any protection against the guy with a gun who's about to shoot her and steal his son. It's interesting. I, I, I agree with you that it's ambivalent in some ways. I do think there are more sort of moments in the movie that are meant to point to real magic. And it, it's often in the ways that the two different stories intersect, right? The toad that she meets in the underworld gives her a key and it's a real key. It's the key that opens the downstairs um, where, where, where the torturing is happening and where the, where the, uh, captain is hiding all the food that he distributes to villagers um the that chalk door that ophelia draws seems to somehow get her from her room down to the captain's chambers but yes you're right we also have these moments where we see at least from other people's perspective that what she is seeing even at a moment of magic is not what other 
people are seeing. And I think you're right that he uses those moments very smartly to to create like big emotional breakthroughs or to move the plot in different ways. Yes, and I think that's an interesting choice, but like in retrospect and viewing it, it doesn't necessarily always come across as a thing that's intentional. It feels a bit disjointed at times. And sometimes it feels like because of how the ending scene is structured, how that whole portion um, with her stepdad not seeing the fun that's attempting to speak with her is near the very end. It can sort of be seen as everything that's happening, all of this proof that we've received that the this magical world is real is all just like a culmination of events leading up to the sucker punch of no it isn't it's just the fantasies of an 11 year old girl stuck in fascist fascist spain but so you feel like you pulled the rug out at that moment when it showed us his point of view and there was no fawn there yes but and then at the same time that kind of sends previous events into like a sort of unclear light whether we're considering was she an unreliable narrator and it feels like all of this stuff can come together in a cohesive way that can be really interesting to like watch and think about but like at the time and even still in retrospect it didn't really feel like a thing that was intended it felt like the movie itself didn't know whether it wanted it to be real or not and then just kept switching back and forth depending on what it felt like would evoke the biggest reaction from us one thing that i think mattered to the movie and that maybe i think gives it a little bit of structure um in that delineation between the fantasy world and the real world is it seemed like what mattered was that it felt real to ophelia but yet even though it was real it was still totally mysterious right she didn't she didn't quite know why the rules of that fantasy world worked the way that she did she didn't know why the fawn sometimes was kind to her and sometimes was cruel why sometimes he gave her second chances and sometimes he didn't. And it reminded me a little bit of the way the real world is to her right now, the way that that parallel military and historical story feels to her, where she knows these big events are happening. She knows that she has something to do with them, that her stepfather, this cruel man, is a is a player in this world, that it's touching her mother and her mother's life, um, that it's real, and it's happening and it can affect her so much. It can affect her that she can get shot or hurt, but it's also totally bewildering and she doesn't quite understand the rules. And I thought one thing that I liked about the way that you don't always know whether the fantasy is real is that I, I thought that that ambivalence was useful in pointing out how much the fantasy world for an 11 year old is like the real world at times. Yeah. That's a good point, and also just makes me feel more like it should have stayed on one side or the other. Like, it's fine to portray it from her perspective, why she would feel like these things would have a real-world tangible impact, but it's the movie isn't limited to just her perspective. We get the perspective of the father and the mother and, like, constant rebels and whatnot, and when there's this continuing lingering thread of there is something real and magical here, then it sort of removes the thematic importance of having this fantasy world mirror her actual, her perception of real life, because if everyone else is also seeing this mysterious, incomprehensible world, and if not seeing it, then at least being able to be impacted by what happens there, Mm -hmm. then it makes how it acts as a perception of the way she sees the world less impactful or intentional, I suppose. There's a sense that, like, the one character 
who who we think maybe might sort of understand what she's going through, even if she never says it outright, is Mercedes, who is on the side of like good, really, right? Who's who is on the who's on the side of the rebels. I thought that was interesting. It's like the captain that I liked thinking that she maybe when she was a kid had had some experience with some of the things that um, that Ophelia had had experience with. Yeah, that's interesting. Let's talk about the pale man. The pale man. That dude. That dude. Uh, you really had a, a visceral reaction to that scene as she was uh, in the in the banquet hall with the pale man as she eats the grapes as she flees him. Did she eat the grapes, you mean? Yeah. Well, well, look at that thing. Look at how everyone, not everyone, I guess the fawn has just been telling you, don't eat anything. He's very clear on that. Yes. Yeah. It's like, how can you misinterpret a statement? Like, <laughs> I don't care how tantalizing the grapes are. Um, if someone had told me um, that I, that by eating a grape, I would result in the awakening of that thing, the like horrible 2001 era creepypasta thing. <laughs> I would like, I would fast, man. I would purge myself. <laughs> I would go on like a, a like a cleanse. I would take like those juice cleanses. Mm-hmm. You know the ones where you're not allowed to drink anything but green, mm-hmm. like forever. I would dedicate myself to a life of pu- life, a pureed spinach. But you definitely wouldn't eat the pureed spinach in the banquet hall. No. Yeah. Uh, interesting. I like him described as like a creepypasta type character. It's like Pale Man and Slender Man clearly are cousins. Yes. Um, Perhaps lovers. Maybe lovers. What well, That would be sweet, actually. Surely on the internet someone has shipped that. Of course they have. Yeah. It's the internet. Yeah. Um, I, I also wonder why she ate the grapes it seems like she's in a trance yeah when she does that and it makes me think of i mean it makes me think a little bit of like adam and eve right of adam and eve eating the apple even though they know they shouldn't and it it just makes me think about how fairy tales are like they're like the stories that are about why we do the things that we know we shouldn't do and it seems like in fairy tales people are always doing stuff like eating the grapes even though they know they shouldn't or eating the apple even though they know they shouldn't or or um or going into the witch's house even though you know you shouldn't like i feel like fairy tales explore that and you know for much of your childhood the fairy tales we watched were the disney fairy tales where sort of all the sort of ancient creepiness and weirdness was was left out of them but now that you're older i think you have come into contact with a lot more of the kinds of fairy tales that are more in the the original tradition of fairy tales, where they were stories told in medieval times and earlier uh, that were meant to like frighten and caution people uh, against the dangers of nature and the dangers of the world, and they were always darker and they often ended in death. Um, what kind of fairy tale do you feel like you prefer at this point at, at age fifteen? I feel like there should be. 
assertive, like, edgy teenage tendency to lean towards the option where actually Ariel turns into seafoam and actually Snow White dies Mm -hmm. and actually the littlest matchstick girl just, like, rots away in the snow. Mm Mm-hmm. The, the dwarves eat Snow White, I assume, in the yes. original version, yeah? Yes, they do. They feast on her corpse with their mm-hmm. little dwarf hands, mm-hmm. you know? I but don't even know if it counts as cannibalism. Are they people? They, 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 uh, yeah, I believe that they are a subset. In, okay, what, in that. what person names their child Sleepy? A descriptive person. It's not descriptive. That's like... Well, a what's, very what's practical parent. Yes, that's self-demonstrating. <laughs> right, but like if you had seven very small kids and they all looked the same, but you couldn't, you needed to be able to tell them apart. Just naming them sleepy, dopey, oh, well, like, and bashful would be great. What kind of sadistic parent would I have to be to, before knowing anything about him, label one of my children dopey? <laughs> that's awful. Some kids, you just know, man, the instant they come out. Of course, you are not like that. No, um, I'm very smart and beautiful. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, all right, so you say you you started that by saying you feel like you should have a teenage predilection for edgy ones. Is there a but attached to that statement? There's a but attached to every statement. Yeah, and and, and, and yeah, yeah, also me. What's the but? Here's the but. Mm-hmm. But... I don't know. I feel like there's something a bit more appealing about the sanitized versions. And I feel like, (laughs) I feel like there shouldn't be, you know, like there's like, there's this tendency that we all have to gravitate towards fiction that is like less appealing. That's sort of uncomfortable because seeing fiction that is uncomfortable is it's a lot easier to be reflected in than a version of a story that's squeaky clean, Mm -hmm. um, you know, but I don't know. I, I just, I like the stuff with the happy endings, even if it's cheesy, I do. And I like a lot of depressing, horrible content as well. But with, when you get to something as, like, bare bones and as, like, fundamental as um, fairy tales and Disney princesses, I like that to be sweet, you know? I like that to be happy. I, I deal with complicated content everywhere else. I mean, Buffy Season 6 is my favorite, for God's <laughs> sake. I can I can rely on something sort of building blocks and mm-hmm. calm for once. I, I like that with fairy tales i feel like if everything else is going to be grim and dour which i do enjoy Mm -hmm. and very much appreciate then there should be like one thing to fall back in that's always going to be like happy ending that's interesting so well then let's talk about the ending which you've referred to a couple of times already but which is i think a real a real dark ending with possible happy undertones but it's a pretty grim bitter kind of happiness um uh ophelia for those who haven't seen the movie we're going to spoil the ending um a little bit here so ophelia kidnap kidnaps the captain's baby uh her mother dies giving birth to this child um she kidnaps the captain's baby and leads him into the labyrinth as for the third trial and the Mm -hmm. fawn demands that she sacrifice her brother and give his blood to the labyrinth but she refuses she says she will not do that um the captain comes chases her into the labyrinth we see that moment that you referred to where the captain sees her talking to nobody um the captain shoots her takes the baby but then he is cornered by the rebels and mercedes takes the baby from him and he says something like will you please tell my son who you know about his father and how he died and mercedes says he'll never even know your name and then they shoot him and the movie ends with Ophelia being held by Mercedes, smiling as she dies, as her blood drips down into the earth. And then there's this coda where we see Ophelia assuming her throne in the underworld as a princess with her father and her mother 
the king and queen of the underworld and the fawn calling her your highness and we're told she ruled for many centuries so it's in the in the version of the movie in which the fantastical is real that's a happy ending for her right she instead of having everything taken away she's given this other chance at the life that she has always deserved the life that was once stolen from her and she rules happily for centuries and makes the world a better place in the world where the magical is is not real this is just a, a hallucination she has in the, her last moments before dying and it's the saddest ending imaginable in what I think we both agree is the world of this movie where both are true and sometimes neither are true. What does that ending mean? And what did you think of it? First off, I like looking at this movie from the perspective that the fantasy world is not real. So I also tend to approach the ending looking from that perspective. Mm -hmm. So I feel like maybe it's not entirely fair for me to judge the ending for being too dark when there's this entire other side of it that I just don't like to think is true because I think it makes the movie less interesting. Mm -hmm. Because I think the fantasy world being real kind of robs the movie of a lot of the stuff that makes it compelling for me. Like, it's not my favorite movie ever, but I did think it was really interesting in a lot of ways. And... I think the fantasy world just being true, like this is a true thing that's happening to her, kind of deflates its balloons, you know? There's, like, no sense of tension because when we see this, we're kind of operating off the assumption it's this 11-year-old girl is seeing fawns and magic, you know, this is fake. This is something that she invented. And then it has us operating with this layer of tension the whole time. And then when it starts implying that actually it is real... It deflates some of that tension, and then it also gives any insights that this magical world could have given into her character no longer have any weight, because they're not something that she's creating that could have any possible say in her behavior or brain. Oh, that's interesting. So you feel like if if the fantasy world isn't a creation of her, then it just reflects, you know, a filmmaker's imagination or some idea or, you know, ancient myths as opposed to her the way it would if it was a reflection of just stuff she was inventing from moment to moment. Yes, and if it was a reflection of just stuff she was inventing from moment to moment, then I think it makes the movie more complex and also her character more complex because if you look from perspective outside of this, then it's just sort of like a, a fantasy romp in a sense that sort of spices <laughs> things up. I wouldn't, call, <laughs> I wouldn't call it that exactly. A fascist fantasy romp. Yes, but the, the spices thing... That spices things up by including this backdrop of nineteen forty four Spanish fascism. Mm -hmm. um, this is so interesting that you what you want out of fairy tales is sort of the simplest version possible, but the way you read this fairy tale is as the most complex version possible. And then you were you're you're semi disappointed when it doesn't live up to that standard. Yeah. Whereas what I wanted out of this movie, I went into this movie absolutely ready to accept the fantastical as real in the universe of the movie. And I didn't really doubt it once, even in that scene when we see the captain not seeing the fawn. My assumption is, well, of course he could never see this. That character could never see this level of the universe of this cinematic universe. Um, and so I found myself in the end, very satisfied uh, by the ending, even while I found it bittersweet because I found it like I found, I felt like all the pieces fit together just right in a way that you clearly didn't. Disregarding all of the complicated notions about whether it's a happy ending or a sad ending, one thing that I did really completely like about the ending was the ending of the father. Decirle a mi hijo 
Decirle a qué hora murió su padre. Decirle que yo... No. Ni siquiera sabrá tu nombre. Yes, I thought that was really good. I thought that was really fitting how he told Mercedes and everyone how he clearly thought he deserved to be remembered, be immortalized, whether as a hero or as a villain, I don't think that really mattered to him. He just wanted to be remembered, and then Mercedes just says, he'll never even know your name, which is good. It's the proper way to treat something like this, to treat a person like that, and then to have the baby go on without any knowledge of his father um, or the things his father did the horrible, awful crimes he committed is, like, the best way to just take a spit in his face. Yeah, it's a great... He's a, he's a really despicable villain, and that's a really great, I would argue, fairy tale worthy ending for that yes, villain, yes. right? That's like Gaston falling off a cliff or whatever. Like, it's yes. that level of... Very good. cathartic. Yeah, yeah, very good. Uh, all right, so um, what do you rate this movie out of 10? 6.5. 6.5. Do you think that like teenagers in general should watch this movie? Would they like it? I think a lot of them would find it very dour and hard to sit through. <laughs> uh-huh. But I'm not every teenager. Um, not to be... I feel like actually... This My is... understanding is that you are only one teenager. That No, father. I'm actually multiple teenagers stuffed inside one flesh suit. Maybe that's true, actually. Um, I feel like this movie is an 8 for me. Um, although it definitely... It is very different watching this movie with your uh, daughter who recently was 11 than it was watching this movie in, in um, 2006 when I just had a baby and it didn't... I was the baby. Yeah, the baby is me. Lyra was the baby and I didn't really have any sense of like... I didn't have the same visceral reaction to Ophelia's death in 2006 as I had now. Um, yeah, obviously. and then if I mean, if you think that's bad, think about how I feel. That's me. Right, that's I'm true. the I'm the nerdy artsy kid. That's me dying. <laughs> Not just my daughter. Uh, all right, let's move on to another nerdy artsy kid. Ah, uh, yeah. In Whisper of the Heart. The next movie, um, the one that I showed Dad, um, was entitled Whisper of the Heart, which is a 1995 anime. Directed by Yoshifumi Kondo and written by Hayao Miyazaki. It was based off a 1989 manga by the same name by Aoi Hiragi. I don't know how to pronounce any Japanese names. I'm very sorry for butchering this. It seemed close-ish. And the reason why I chose this movie, partially because I have seen almost every Studio Ghibli movie out there. I love Studio Ghibli. Spirited Away is like my favorite movie ever. Um... And the fact that there was a Studio Ghibli movie that was written by Miyazaki, no less, that I had not seen, seemed like reason enough to check it out. Um, And in the aftermath of Pan's Labyrinth, just based off of the few things that I knew about it, it seemed like an appropriate choice. Anyways, Whisper of the Heart, plot follows a girl. Her name is Shizuku Tsukishima. We can just call her Shizuku. Yes, Shizuku. Um, Who, at one point... Um, while going out to deliver lunch for her dad, runs into a mysterious cat who leads her to an antique shop that has a cat, a fake little cat, called the Baron, um, who then inspires her. She does a lot of stuff. Um, she meets a boy 
she had angry flirts with a boy and then real flirts with a boy. Mm-hmm. He makes some violins. Mm-hmm. Um, and she gets inspired to, while he's away making violins, to write a story. She's an aspiring writer, and the well, the the journey we see her go on is this journey to actually sit down, put everything else on her life aside, and write this story and try and make it great. Yes. Yeah. Which is big relatable. Shizuku? No way. Shizuku is such a great storyteller, but now that the story is about her, she won't say a single word. You can't hide the fact that you're in love, Shizuku. The look on your face shows your heart suffers with every beat. How romantic. You are in love. Go ahead and make fun of me if you want to. Too bad. I was going to show you my lyrics for Country Roads. You're finished? Let me see, let me see. Great, Shizuku. Master of writing. We shall make fun of you no more. Please grace us with your words. That's better. I don't know if it's any good, though. And it might not be appropriate for graduation. I just tried to write something from the heart. I want to know what your first impressions were. How did you feel about it immediately coming off of it? And how do you feel now? Just really general stuff, not touching on anything specific, because I'll probably ask about that later. I had never seen this movie. I knew almost nothing about it. I, I like Lyra, really love Studio Ghibli. Um, and based on the, most of the Ghibli movies that I'd seen before, and you know, based on the DVD cover and the, the promo art of this, I assume this was some kind of fantastical tale with like a talking cat. Yeah, um, you know, DVD cover shows the main character sort of walking through a fantasy world with the Baron, the cat statue, but like full grown and talking to her. It's like with the voice of Carrie Elways as the Baron. Um, so that's what I thought it was. Uh, it is extremely not that. No, at absolutely all. not. Uh, the that fantastical moment is truly only a moment in the movie. It's a moment where she's envisioning the story she's going to tell, the story she's actually going to write. Really, it's an extremely realistic, uh, sensitive story of a a kid who's an artist figuring out how to be an artist while also falling in love. And, uh, and as that became clear to me, I thought I was going to find it cheesy and hate it. And in fact, I loved it. Me too. A lot. And... Much more than I expected. Spoiler to. alert, everyone! We yeah, really yeah. liked it. We really liked it, I, and um, and I like it even more. I think in retrospect, I love how romantic it is. I love how funny it is, um, and I love this picture of a person learning to like work to make to make something that she cares about. Like that is very meaningful to me. Yeah, me too. Throughout watching the entire movie, I kept expecting to have this moment. You know, the one where like everything suddenly devolves into fantasy. I assume mm-hmm. she would walk into the shop and the cat would be gone. Um, or I thought it would start talking to her in the shop. Yeah, yeah. Or that the cat she was chasing through the neighborhood would, would start like, talking to her. Would lead her to like a magical world. Oh, yeah, yeah. Or that, like Totoro, yes. Every yes. time it didn't go into fantasy, I was like, oh, I guess it'll do it later. And then it never did. And I kind of <laughs> I kind of love that. I kind of love that how like from the cover and everything, it like knew, it had like this sardonic, sarcastic little grin on its face the whole time. I'm sure mm-hmm. that was like, yeah, I bet you expected this to be just like Totoro. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not. There's no fantasy to this. Just a teenage girl writing a book and falling in love. I'm so curious whether this was like marketed in Japan uh, with just that image of like people went into this movie thinking it was like Totoro 2 with a talking cat. Uh, or if they if they knew the manga, maybe maybe I mean I don't, actually don't know how famous 
that manga is in Japan. As far as I can tell, it hasn't ever really been translated and published in English. So it's never been popular enough like to have that treatment given to it. But I just don't like I'm so curious what people in Japan knew about this movie going in and to what extent it undercut their expectations the way it undercut mine. And it and it really helps that it's a Ghibli movie because mm-hmm. we all know what Ghibli movies are like. They're all this like amazing fantastical romp. Some of them get darker than others. You know, like Totoro is like very sweet and young, whereas Princess Mononoke is hardcore. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, all of them have this element of not necessarily high fantasy, but the mystical, mm-hmm. the spirits, the yokai, um, mm-hmm. the parents turning into pigs. But this didn't have any of that, which I think helped make it all the more surprising when the movie ended and not a single fantastical thing had happened the entire time. Well, and it really reminded me how one of the things I have always loved about Ghibli movies and Miyazaki's movies in particular is how even in both the fantastical and the non-fantastical moments, there's just a lot of focus on how people actually behave and the way they move and the little details that make life seem real. And so all those scenes of um, Shizuku following the cat and losing it in little neighborhoods and then finding it and then being awestruck by how cute the neighborhood was and then loving the antique shop, the scenes of her writing or sitting in her bedroom talking to her sister, like those all just felt very real and authentic to me. And I think the animation helps with that too because it's so intricate and like beautiful and detailed. There are like all these little moments of characters doing things. Like I specifically remember moments during like Totoro where Mei is like running along and she just like stumbles and has to catch herself. And Mm -hmm. I think they do that a lot in Ghibli movies and it's just like this lovely little aspect to it that really sort of captures the humanity of it, which sort of leads into my next question, which I think based on all of this, I probably already know the answer for, but I'm going to ask it anyways. Mm -hmm. So I know you're an old man. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate you broadcasting that to to our um, millions of listeners. Yes. Which there better be millions of, by the way. Mm -hmm. Um, But I know you're an old man. Mm -hmm. I know you're graying and also balding and all of that. (laughs) Come on. (laughs) Ask the question. Okay. I know you're an old man. (laughs) This is my lead-in. <laughs> and you don't necessarily remember a lot of your childhood that well, other than the parts that you do. I've gotten significantly older during, over the course of the asking of this question. Yes. <laughs> Can Carry on. We're all aging. It's not just you. Yeah. Anyways, point is, treatment of childhood. What did you think? Did you think it was entirely natural did you think it was a little romanticized i personally thought it was a little romanticized in the movie but i mean i think childhood is romanticized in every single ghibli movie out there it's part of the appeal for me and it definitely does not attract from the enjoyment at all but i just wanted to see your perspective on the matter um i think it's a little i agree that it's a little bit romanticized in sort of traditional comedic ways right like the relationship between um, Shizuku and her classmates who all think of her as like a lovable bookworm. No one ever really makes fun of her. Instead, they all are just like so thrilled and delighted when there's a boy who's interested in her. They all and spy on her at they once. They all spy on her at once, but like with delight and affection, there's like no real bitterness there. Um, and, you know, and, and a way of thinking about how realistic the portrayal of childhood is in this is for me, at least, it's comparing Shizuku to the the person in my life who recently was 14 and who's a writer and who um, 
and who is, you know, thinking and struggling with a lot of the same issues that Shizuku in this mo- is in this movie about finding your voice and figuring out how to put in the work to finish something that you're proud of. And, um, and in those respects, it felt very realistic to me. I mean, you, uh, you're, you're right that you haven't, you know, written something as long as Shizuku has yet, but the way that she works towards that and pushes herself towards doing it reminded me a lot of the ways that you push yourself to get better and are very self-critical of the work that you do in a way that it seems like Shizuku is as well, while still, like Shizuku, knowing deep in your bones, it seems to me, that the work you do is good and that it has value. And that I'm not going to stop doing it ever because I'd be a failure. No, just kidding. That is also a thing that, uh, I mean, you joke, but I do think that you and Shizuku have that kind of like all or nothing approach towards the work that you do like you one of the reasons you're so critical of your writing and your art is that you're like well it's not as good as the best possible drawing i've ever seen in my life or it's not as good as the best work of the best novel i've ever read which is of course one of the arguments of this movie is that's not the way to judge the works of art that you make early in your artistic life the way to judge them as nishi says to her is are these stones that you can polish to turn into something good and are they worth the polishing and and so i loved that and i and i thought the way that shizuku had to learn that over the course of the movie reminds me of the way i think you still sort of have to learn that in in regards to your own work yes but have you considered i'm not da vinci so none of that matters <laughs> but no one is da vinci except da vinci and he's dead right and one of the lessons of this movie is that judging yourself by da vinci standards as Seiji does and with his violin making, right? He's like, he thinks he's a failure because the violins he makes at 15 aren't as perfect. good as the perfect violins made by people who've been doing it for 50 years. Yeah. I um, bet Da Vinci can make a violin. I bet. He, I'm sure he probably did. That guy did everything. Yeah. Um, but, but like. But Michelangelo couldn't make a violin. <laughs> but I, a very few of the Ninja Turtles made violins. Um, well, you don't know. But so I love the that I loved watching this character start to figure that out with the help of these people in her life. And I know that I have enjoyed as you've grown up watching you start to figure that out. And I think I will enjoy watching you continue to figure that out as you develop as an artist. Especially when I surpass you. Especially when you surpass me, yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. Next question. How does this compare to Pan's Labyrinth? We didn't really get to discuss this with the first movie because we hadn't really talked about the second one yet, but I was really interested in seeing how you thought because, you know, there's this important framing of artistic, sensitive writer who thinks a lot of things, like just this tiny girl that I can see myself reflected in so many ways, and then in one of the movies the girl is shot and killed, and then in the other movie she, like, professes her love and tries to get Mary. Well, that definitely seemed to be a way in which you clearly delineated them, right? Like the, the difference in the fates of the characters really struck you in these two movies, especially considering, as you say, they do seem to start out in kind of similar places, right? Ophelia is clearly in a lot more peril at the beginning of this movie and in a much tougher situation than Shizuku, who, who, you know, has some teen girl problems, mostly is living a happy life with loving parents. 
uh, in, in a suburb of Tokyo. But they're both sensitive kids. They're both trying to figure themselves out. And they both are encountering mysteries out in the world and are chasing after them. Like the scene in Whisper of the Heart that reminded me the most of Pan's Labyrinth was Shizuku chasing the cat right through the streets and just in the way that Ophelia chased that fairy into the labyrinth or the insect that would be unveiled as a fairy later into the labyrinth at the beginning of the movie. And, and the way that Ophelia's chase of the mysterious leads her to dark places and Shizuku's chase of the mysterious leads her to light places. I think that's essentially the difference in these two movies, right? That's, that's the, that's the differing views of mystery that they have. But at the same time, I don't think it's exactly black and white. I think that for all the darkness of Pan's Labyrinth, Ophelia finds real beauty and real wonder and, and finds real bravery and courage inside herself over the course of this quest, even though it ends the way that it ends. And I think Shizuku over the course of this essentially sweet chasing of, of the mysterious in her life also finds ways in which she sometimes can be mean or, or at least thoughtless towards her friends and her family. She finds ways in which her work frustrates her and her inability to do the work she wants frustrates her. And she comes to terms with how hard it is to live the kind of life that she's going to want to live that won't be a fairy tale existence, right? If she wants to be a writer, it's going to take a ton of work and it's going to be difficult. And it, and and the endings of both are so singular and interesting, but the, but neither one of them, I think, is, is entirely happy or entirely sad. Yeah, I would say just, just on a base level, of course I'm going to prefer the one where the me insert doesn't get shot over the one where the me insert does. But then I also thought is that in retrospect, a lot of the stuff concerning Ophelia and a lot of the stuff concerning Shizuku makes me think that Pan's Labyrinth is more of a story that uses Ophelia herself as a vehicle Mm -hmm. to communicate ideas, to communicate pain, to make us feel a lot of sad emotions. Whereas Whisper of the Heart is more a story that is about Shizuku, which is why I think I gravitated more towards it, because it's more about Shizuku's own problems and her own issues and her own pain and the development she grows, goes through as a person and as a creator. Whereas Pan's Labyrinth is this great expansive tale that focuses on many, many other characters, whereas Whisper of the Heart never really goes anywhere other than Shizuku's POV. Um, but Pan's Labyrinth is this great, expansive story following, like, an enormous, bloody struggle, and Ophelia can occasionally come across as more of someone who represents, you know, how far of a line it is to shoot an 11-year-old girl. She's like a chess piece. She's like one of the chess pieces on the board. She's the one who drives a lot of the action, and she's the one whose point of view we're in the most, but she's still one of many chess pieces. Yes. Okay, so how did you feel about the ending? General producer Miyazaki went on record defending it, saying that he wanted Shizuku and Seiji to commit to something. Did you personally see anything in the ending that would be cause for a controversy that would require him to put out a statement? Because I personally didn't. I mean, I maybe this is a really simple way to approach it, but I just thought it was cute. I thought it was adorable. I thought it was sweet. I loved every second of it. It never made me cringe incredibly awkwardly watching it, which is my main problem with romance. So many miscommunications and horrible things. 
but, but right. this it was just adorable. That's interesting. So what you sometimes don't like about romance is the ways it goes awry, not just a romance itself. Yeah. That's funny. It's My guess is what Miyazaki was responding to are people who who did not like that the 14 year old protagonist of this movie were like, let's get married. And they're like, okay. <laughs> uh, which is like, admittedly like that is a lot, right? I wanted to show this to you. It's beautiful, isn't it? Grandpa told me about all the amazing writing you've been doing. I feel bad that I wasn't here to encourage you. I was just off thinking about myself. You're the one who inspired me, Seiji. I'm glad I pushed myself. I know myself a little bit better now. I realized I need a lot more schooling, so I don't mind doing what it takes to get into a good high school. Shizuku, I've been thinking. It's that I know this might sound really weird to you, but could you see us getting married someday? I promise I'll be a professional violin maker and you can be a professional writer. Mm-hmm. Does this sound corny? It's a little corny, but you're a violin maker, not a writer. That's true. This is great. Come here. It's getting cold. Shizuku, I love you. 14-year-olds in love do that shit all the time. Yeah, of course I, they Like, do. I have no idea whether Shizuku and um, Seiji actually will get married somewhere down the line. I don't think the movie is implying that they're getting married the day after. And so I didn't really, that didn't bother me either. Like in the moment that he said it, I was just like, oh, this kid is so overwhelmed by this moment that he is conveying it in basically the only way he can think of. Uh, And I like sort of love that. And I uh, agree with you that I found it cute and adorable. It helps that the, that it occurs on this uh, uh, like cliff overlooking Tokyo in literally the most beautiful sunrise Uh, I've ever seen in a movie. I mean, it's just probably the most beautiful animation I've ever seen. Definitely. There's been a million movies out there where two characters sit on a cliff and watch the sunset or the sunrise, but I don't think I've ever seen it look prettier than this. Yeah. Yeah. To put it quite simply, they were being charmed by each other, but I was being charmed by the romance that we're having. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's right. That's like what we're happening. That's pretty much just what happened. And it's like, you know, it's not like the movie ever says, like, this is an enduring love that is going to last forever. Right, who knows? Like, yeah, like, they could, like, break up in two weeks or they could actually get married. It doesn't matter. The point is, they are 14-year-olds and they really care about each other a lot, clearly. And, you know, they like each other. They want to express it in the way that 14-year-olds are off to do. I can say that because I'm 15 now. Mm-hmm, right, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You'd never. I'd you're never. You're much more mature now. Mm-hmm. Um, according to the Anime News Network, we may get to find out the answer to those questions because they have shot a live action sequel to whisper of the heart which is apparently being released in japan (laughs) this fall i don't know how covid has changed the possible release date of this movie but it is apparently set 10 years later all i know about it is that he is still off making violins and she is a children's book editor and she's 24 and he's 24 and i guess it explores how their relationship evolves that is insane. Yeah. How did I never know this? I, don't, I mean, it just got announced just like a few months ago. So I'm so curious. I, who knows if it'll even be good. released in the United States or and or good. Yes. Um, I, I mean, it's not being made by Ghibli. Miyazaki has nothing to do with it. Um, I would like to note that the dad in the dad character in Whisper of the Heart, much more sympathetic than the dad character in Pan's Labyrinth. Oh, oh, yes. Great, absolutely. Great dad in Whisper yes. of the Heart. Like if we, I feel like something we could do 
maybe not necessarily because I don't know if every movie will have a dad figure and a father figure, but mm-hmm. we could definitely, in every movie that has a dad figure, we could rate dads. I would say Whisper, I mean, not Whisper, Pan's Labyrinth's dad, solid zero out of ten. Two, two dads down, yeah. Yes, yeah. garbage, garbage mm-hmm. dad. Mm-hmm. Whereas Whisper in the Heart's dad, like an eight out of ten. He's a solid dad. He's so a really good. solid dad. Sensitive, very friendly. He teases, teases her a little. But uh, but then in the end, lets her do the things she wants to do. Yes. Uh, it, he's definitely he's much nicer than me. Yes. Yeah, that's clearly the case. Yes. He's a great dad. He never even thinks about murdering his daughter. Not even once. Why do you think um, Shizuku cried after Nishi responded to her book? He, she gave Nishi the old man her book. He read it. She like sat outside his door while he read it. <laughs> yeah. Read it now. That's exactly how every writer feels when they finish something. Yes. Um. Why did she cry when he responded to it? So there you are. I finished your book, Shizuku. Thank you, dear. It was really wonderful. No, it's not. It's a mess. The storyline goes all over the place. All the characters' dialogue sounds corny. You have to tell me the truth. I know it's a complete disaster. No, it's just a bit rough, dear. Like Sage's violin. What I read was raw and heartfelt. You should be very proud for all your hard work. You've dug inside your soul and found some real gems. Next, you'll need to polish it, which will also take a lot of work. I think the answer to that question is quite simple. It's overwhelming. Showing something that you pour heart and soul into is like you have these conflicting feelings of desperation as in I want them to read it and I want their feedback right now and also what if they hate it? What if they look at this thing that is like deeply embarrassing to show to someone else because I put so much effort into it and putting effort into something is uncool. Mm -hmm. But like there's all these conflicting emotions and even if someone likes it, all of these emotions are still going to pile up and just boil over. Like no matter what response they have to your work, you're probably going to end up crying at least a little. I think that is true, but I also think there is something more to it. In any other movie, I think the response an adult would give a work that, you know, a book that a kid had spent a third of the movie working so hard on would have been basically like, it's amazing. I loved it. It's everything I dreamed it would be incredible. And then the next day it would be like published on bookshelves. (laughs) His response wasn't that, right? It was, I really liked it. I can see the places where it needs a lot more work. um, And I think you should do that work. And what I I thought she was responding to so strongly was having the book that she wrote taken absolutely seriously by someone whose aesthetic judgment she respected, taken so seriously that he was willing to say, there are things about this that aren't good yet. But I, but I know you can make them good, and I think it's worth the work to make them good. Yeah. That's a very that's the response that you give to an adult, right? And their artwork, and it's not a response that kids get a lot to to their artwork. What kids get is you're so talented, or it's amazing, or else what the hell is this? But you don't usually <laughs> some kind of tube. Some kind of tube. Yes, thank you, Bob Dole. Um, you're welcome. Like I just don't think that's the way that most adults respond to kids' work, and and. It really struck me that that was the way that he responded. Yeah. If it showed something on your face that was absolute garbage, like a rotting, run-over raccoon carcass of a manuscript, would you give me that sort of response, Father? If it was that bad, I probably wouldn't tell you to put in the work to revise it. No, but I hope that if you... I hope that when you show me things that you write, I mean, particularly writing where I feel like I have some 
knowledge and authority of how to make things better. And that's not like art where I, where I'm a real amateur in writing in particular. I hope that my responses strike you as adult responses. It's like taking the work seriously and taking you seriously in the ways that it is good. And in the ways that it could be better. better. Yeah. And I think that's good. I think that's a good observation to make about how she felt in regards to things being taken seriously. I mean, especially when you consider how her parents have been responding to it, because her parents, they're good parents, they're good dads, but then they're also, they look at this project that she won't tell anything about, and they maybe correctly deem that it is, it's more important to her schoolwork for now, but then there's this large period of time in which everyone's constantly getting on her case, her parents, her siblings, about not working, where she feels she's working on something that is deeply important to her and deeply passionate, but because she's a child, nothing matters more than, like, studying for entrance exams or whatever. We have debates like that in this house a lot, right? Where, yeah. where in fact, you're working really hard on something, we, we wish you were working really hard on something else, and it's hard for us sometimes to view the stuff that you're passionate about as legit in our eyes. Yes. Just because you're bad at anime girls doesn't mean I have to be. Or just because I don't get Drawing fan it. fiction, for example, <laughs> is not... Way to expose me in front of everyone, Father. It's, it's a totally normal thing. And <laughs> whatever. I can cut this if you want, but I think it's relevant. A, a real struggle for me as a dad over the last six years now has been grasping that even though I'll truly, really never get fan fiction doesn't mean that you being interested in and writing and reading fan fiction is not a worthwhile way to spend your artistic time. Like that's been really hard for me and I still am not all the way there. And we've had any number of debates about it, but like that is a thing that I think a lot of parents struggle with. And I thought that was very realistic in this, how the parents don't understand at all what the hell it is that she's doing <laughs> instead of studying. It doesn't help that she won't even tell them. Yeah. Um, but I, I feel like at some point it should be a bit clear. Like they're right. seeing her like scribbling. Right. She's clearly writing. So, and so, and I was so grateful that the parents in this movie in the end, like gave her the leash, like g gave her the space to do the thing that she wanted to do, even though they didn't quite get it. Yeah. Like trusted that she knew what she was doing and that if she really, if like, if it was this sort of like, unimportant thing that they would perceive it that that they initially perceived it as then i mean chances are she would have just dropped it after a week right but right. she didn't she kept working on it because it clearly matters so much to her and even if they can't understand it it's important to let her follow something that has consumed so much of her energy and time and something that she is clearly deeply passionate about so is this is this all leading up to a long argument that you should be allowed to play animal crossing more every day because it's your passion project yes great Anyone who is watching this, please spam my father's Twitter account, dancoyce at twitter.com. I would like all of you to say, Lyra Coyce should, and in fact is legally obligated to play no more, no less than five hours of Animal Crossing a day. Uh, truly, that is what Miyazaki meant when he made this movie. All right, let's yes. wrap it up. He told me. Mm -hmm. He whispered in my dreams. Mm -hmm. that, that's the whisper of the heart. Yes, my heart. <laughs> give me a score out of 10. I would give this a nine. I... I think maybe this is my second favorite Studio Ghibli movie I was after up. Spirited Away. I, like, I never thought I would say such a thing. But right I, now, that's where it is. How about you? I would also give it a nine. I would say it's my third favorite Studio Ghibli movie after Spirited Away, Mononoke, and okay. Mononoke. Okay, interesting. Uh, man, this movie is good. It's really good. People I really loved it. it. They should really I, I'm going to save my 10 out of 10s for like absolutely incredible movies, like top five material. Right. 
Um, I actually wanted to talk about that. I think it's useful for people to get to know us as moviegoers. Let's very quickly, let's tell listeners a few of our 10 out of 10s. What are a few of our all-time favorite movies? I'll, I'll say mine first so you can think about yours. Um, my four favorites of all time, Spirited Away, um, Yi Yi, which is a 2000 drama by a Taiwanese director named Edward Young, um, Raising Arizona, which you have seen, Lyra, and uh, um, a romantic comedy from the 1980s called Broadcast News. Those, are, I think, are my four like perfect 10 out of 10 favorite movies. What are a few of yours? A few of mine are Spirited Away, mm-hmm. obviously. Mm-hmm. Princess Mononoke, also obviously. Mm-hmm. Being John Malkovich, which is a completely, <laughs> deeply bizarre movie that follows... Okay, I don't want to, like talk about it in detail because it is really the sort of thing that you just need to know watch knowing nothing Mm -hmm. but it follows actor john malkovich and the people that find themselves living in his head Mm -hmm. um and then also probably moonrise kingdom which is like a really great really beautiful movie by the same guy who did fantastic mr fox which you can recognize just by the shots of people standing in the middle of empty rooms Mm -hmm. talking Mm -hmm. which is a constant thing he does and now i can like never get out of my brain one time lyra walked into a room where i was watching a different wes anderson movie and she immediately goes oh is this that moonrise kingdom guy and i was right it was that moonrise kingdom guy you can always tell anyways moonrise kingdom is beautiful and also very funny also, Into the Spider-Verse, which is gorgeous. I love that movie. Great movie. Great action. Great adventure. Great heart. Looks so good. Yes. Uh, all right. Um, let's wrap up. Uh, the last thing I want to do is I want us to tell each other what are the movies we're going to be talking about next time around. You want to go first? Yes. What are you going to make me watch? Um, general, please. We're watching a movie that I have never seen before, even though I probably should have, because it's apparently very fundamental to anime as a whole. Akira, which I know is totally crazy, super like cyberpunk aesthetic. I think it's going to be fun. I've also never seen Akira, or rather Akira was playing once in someone's basement when I was 15 and hanging out, but I was like, what is this? And I didn't watch like more than two seconds Your voice of it. was really that deep when you were 15? Uh, no, I, I was probably more like, what is this? Um, but I like didn't get it. I was like, what the hell is this thing? <laughs> um, I had no sense of what anime was. It seemed weird. I stopped watching. So I don't really know that much about Akira at Peon. all either. I know it takes place in Neo Tokyo. Yeah. Um, Super cool name for Tokyo. Tokyo, get on the... The movie I would like you to watch with me for next episode uh, is also from the 80s, also an action movie. Uh, it is it is a comedy action movie starring Jackie Chan called Police Story. Uh, apparently, I've never seen it. It is apparently one of the all-time great action comedies featuring some of the most insane, crazy, stupid stunts ever put on screen. I'm very excited. Oh, well, when you sell it to me like that, how can I deny? I love seeing stupid stunts. Every time I watch a movie with stupid stunts, I, I watch it and go, wow, in a parallel universe, you broke your neck doing this. Apparently, that's what every second of this movie is like. I can't wait. Wonderful. Uh, all right. Thank you, Lara. You are? Welcome. Uh, and thank you, listeners. Join us for the next episode. See you Please later. Please do not forget to message Dan Coyce at twitter.com about Animal the Crossing. End. Thank you. End.